You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 467, Meld. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a two-handed grip to the face value of each and every episode of Star Trek, pressing further for the morals, meanings, and messages, and trying to determine if it stands the test of time. This week, Meld. The one where Tuvok melds the best and worst traits of Ahab and Javert, and not nearly enough of Deadly Do-Right in order to get his man. I'll return shortly with trivia, but first, Norman will tell you how to stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia and radiogenic particle count. All right, yes, here we go. Get your wagers in now. It's trivia for Meld. We have a story by Mike Sussman, and this is the first outing for Mike uh, with a Star Trek credit, but his name is likely very familiar to longtime Trek fans. He, of course, goes on to write a number of Voyager episodes and then sticks around for more than 20 of Enterprise with his name on it. After that, He continued to collaborate with some of his fellow Trek alumni on their later projects as well. Now, Mike was a Star Trek fan from childhood, and way back in 1995, he had an internship with the writers of Voyager. Michael Piller was specifically looking for pitches that would challenge Tuvok with a dose of random violence, something that the Vulcan could not make sense of. Mike gave the pitch that they all liked the most, and that led the teleplay tooties directly back to Michael Piller himself. And really, that was a matter of timing. In the middle of the season, the staff were trying to catch up as fast as they could with the demands of production. Mike Sussman was a new writer with almost no professional experience outside of his internship, so Piller took it up to finish the story and make a few changes. For example, in the original pitch, the killer, an alien, was motivated by racial hatred, which would have, in turn, forced Tuvok to confront his feelings about humans. Now, once Pillar knew the direction that he wanted to take the script, he went the extra mile and hired a consultant, a psychologist, to try to hit the realism of the story's antagonist. Tim Russ, by the way, did the same thing, researching criminal psychology with experts in the field in order to get a feel for how Tuvok changes. It was directed by Cliff Bull, and we most recently caught up with Cliff on his first Voyager episode as director. That was Cold Fire, and here he has said that part of his process was to give Tim a lot of leeway and explore the scenes on his own, really taking them over the top, and those became Cliff's favorite takes. Now, guest stars, there's just one this week to shine our spotlight on, and that is Brad Dourif as Lon Suter. 
Interestingly, he was friends with Ethan Phillips, and it was just over a casual conversation that Brad expressed his interest in appearing in a guest role on Voyager. Now, keep in mind, though, that Brad already had a long career under his belt at this point. His breakout role was in Milos Forman's 1975 screen adaptation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson. Brad, of course, played Billy Bibbit in that movie. That put him on the map, and other great roles followed. He turned up in features like Blue Velvet, Mississippi Burning. Uh, and by the way, he is the voice of Chucky in all of the Child's Play movies and spinoffs. This was all while simultaneously taking on a number of TV guest roles. I mean, Miami Vice, The Equalizer, Babylon 5, and so much more. More recently, you can catch him on Deadwood, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and in an upcoming announced remake of Reanimator. John, if I could jump in here for a second, because you know sometimes I do this. And and some people that are fans of Brad Dorff's work, you know, you're obviously going to say, what about Piter from Dune? You know, <laughs> Dune is perfectly well earned. Yes, and yes. then of course his uh, his tour de force performance as Grima Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you pointed that. I, I of course am not the uh, the big Lord of the Rings expert, but uh, yes, that is certainly important on his resume. So suffice to say, Brad has an incredible background as an actor, and uh, we're not done with him yet. Uh, we're not done with long. Suter. This is only the first of three appearances that Brad will make on Voyager. Working in the Jeffrey's tubes is apparently murder on the skin and everything inside the skin. Prologue. All over Voyager, things are happening. In the holodeck, Tom Paris is hustling Harry Kim at pool, but when Harry catches on, Tom invents a new game, open to everyone. Simply guess. The radiogenic particle count tomorrow at noon. It just takes one replicator ration to play. Winner takes the pot. Over in engineering, Bellana is dealing with a warp drive that's not working, and Ensign Hogan says Souter was working on it, and it's likely a problem with the EPS conduit. In the mess hall, Tuvok is getting annoyed by the morale officer himself, Neelix, offering to celebrate a Vulcan ritual that involves nudity and greasy food. Lucky for Tuvok, a call comes from engineering. Just as Bellana was looking into the EPS conduit, she found something unexpected. A body. Act 1. A dead body, to be precise. The EMH says the victim, Crewman Darwin, has third-degree burns over 98% of his body and could have been completely vaporized by the conduit. But more telling, Darwin had head trauma, indicating that this was no accident. When Janeway convenes some of her senior staff, they do narrow it down to one guy, Crewman Lon Suter, a betazoid who was one of the Maquis. Chakotay says he can't quite put his finger on it. He was one of those quiet guys who was maybe a little too good at his job, which was, after all, killing Cardassians. Tuvok is quick to interview the suspect, but Suter denies any wrongdoing. Not so fast. The doctor has determined that there was foreign DNA in the wound site, and it positively identifies Suter. Back to his quarters, and Tuvok delivers the news. Suter is quietly resigned to his guilt. He admits killing Darwin with a coil spanner and then trying to dispose of the body in the conduit. He hid the weapon on another deck. Tuvok has all he needs, 
But what perplexes him is that Souter offers no motive. He says he killed Darwin because I don't like the way he looked at me. Act two. The doctor confirms with Tuvok that they have a murder weapon and a confession. Case closed. But Tuvok is unsatisfied that he doesn't have a motive. Suter's profile aligns with others, some violent tendencies, but that's not unusual, certainly not among Maquis. That doesn't answer the question of motive, though, and the doctor suggests that maybe there isn't one. Maybe Suter just can't or didn't suppress his violent tendencies. Humanoids all have evolved from predators, even Vulcans. Some merely suppress the violent tendencies better than others. Tuvok visits Suter at the brig, and the story is the same. He didn't like the way Darwin looked at him. Tuvok asks if Suter feels any remorse, but he says he doesn't feel anything at all. And isn't that strange for the empathetic Betazoid? What's next for him? Well, he knows that Starfleet won't execute him, but Tuvok and Janeway will have to figure out some kind of punishment. So Tuvok heads off to find the captain. Ah, but not so fast. He can't help himself. Tuvok goes right back into the brig and asks Suter if he's familiar with the Vulcan mind meld. He says he is, but he would not recommend that Tuvok join their minds. He might not like what happens. Tuvok says his Vulcan physiology and mental discipline can help him suppress violent tendencies he may pick up. In turn... Suter may pick up some of Tuvok's discipline. And so they begin. Act 3. Stepping out of the mind of a killer for a moment, Tom Paris has Harry and the rest of those interested in the holodeck at Chez Sandrine to reveal the winner of today's radiogenic particle lottery. And the winner is... nobody. Sixteen replicator rations are in the pot, but better luck tomorrow. Which leaves Tom with a surplus and he generously offers to buy lunch for Harry. An agitated Tuvok, meanwhile, shares the findings of his mind meld with Captain Janeway. He says that Suter has an extremely violent nature and, until now, found other ways to regulate it, like joining the Maquis. Now he's on a Starfleet ship, and what should they do with him? The brig for 70 years? Tuvok brings up another punishment, one that Suter himself feels is appropriate, execution. Janeway is appalled at the suggestion, though, she won't end someone's life. She'd rather confine him to quarters as long as it takes and attempt to rehabilitate him. There's more for them to discuss, but Janeway checks in with her security officer personally, too. How is he doing? Tuvok admits that while Suter is showing some signs of calm and control, he himself is feeling disconcerted after the meld. Janeway says he should take some time off, meditate, but he says he's got it under control. To relax, Tuvok goes to the mess hall, where he's immediately interrupted by Neelix. It's just the usual annoying cheer that the morale officer has to offer. He insists on a smile from Tuvok and even starts a song that his mother once taught him. Before he can get the first note out, though, Tuvok's hand shoots up and grips Neelix around the throat. He keeps squeezing until Neelix gasps his last and falls to the floor dead. Then Tuvok calls for the computer to end holodeck program. Act 4. Tuvok just murdered Hollow Neelix, but you're probably wondering what Tom is up to with his gambling operation. It's over. Chakotay busted him, and oh my, he's going to fill out a report.
Back to the brig, where Tuvok comes to find Lon Suter a little more relaxed, more centered in an almost Vulcan way. He offers that with constant mental discipline and holodeck exercises, Suter may be rehabilitated. Suter says he's tried all kinds of rehabilitation techniques, but none of them worked. Only, it seems, the mind meld has kept him in control, and now he wants another. The first experience was profound for him, as it must have been for Tuvok, joining two minds and seeing that the violence in Suter is uncontrollable, the very absence of logic. Tuvok advises against it, and Suter says he understands that the meld itself can be a form of violence, that if Tuvok lost control, it could kill the other person. Disturbed by the insight, Tuvok returns to his quarters, establishes the security seal, and then informs the captain that he is no longer fit for duty. Act 5. Janeway arrives to find the contents of Tuvok's quarters smashed to bits. He is sitting in the dark, advising the captain to stay away, but she insists that he go to sickbay. Under sedation, they get him there. And the doctor immediately notices a huge imbalance in Tuvok's neurochemistry. It could have been an incompatibility with the Betazoid, but regardless, he says that a mind meld in general is a bad idea. But the doctor and Kess have an idea. They can essentially shock him back to his normal self with a procedure that should work. It will involve waking Tuvok up from his unconscious state and using a bit of tech, temporarily removing his emotional suppression. With the go-ahead from Janeway, they begin, and this Tuvok is very different indeed. All his emotions, the good and the bad, maybe especially the bad, are coming out to the surface. Fortunately, he's behind a force field in sickbay, but the hard truths are coming out. He's disgusted by Janeway's decision. He wants an execution to punish Suter and to give justice to the victim's family. He even tries to manipulate Kess telepathically, but Tuvok's powers have been hobbled while he purges Suter's influence. As the treatment finishes, Tuvok passes out, and he'll need to stay in sickbay, confined for as long as it takes for him to regain his sense of self-control. Then, late at night, Tuvok wakes up and disables the field himself. Disturbed and determined, a sweaty Tuvok makes his way to the brig to execute Suter. He states his purpose, and Suter tells him that that won't end the torment, that killing him won't settle the need for justice. As Tuvok forces a mind meld on him, Suter is stunned, but Tuvok suddenly falls to the floor, unable to take the strain. Suter takes the comm badge from an unconscious Tuvok and calls for help. With Suter now in his quarters on permanent confinement, Tuvok is back in sickbay, and the EMH has good news. The fact that he couldn't murder Suter means that his internal suppression was working. A little more time, and he'll be back to himself again. Tuvok apologizes to Captain Janeway for his actions and for his show of insubordination and insults to her. She accepts and reminds him that there are to be no more mind melds without her permission. The End
Sometimes, John, it's really nice when we get challenged to try and break down the actual episode. I'm not sure if you felt challenged or not, considering that this episode was so light and fluffy. <laughs> but, just, you know, just a walk in the park. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is a Twinkie of an episode. So, yeah. you know, good on you for breaking it down. Was it really that hard? I'm not sure. You know, <laughs> no, you know what? <laughs> no. I, I, I have to say that it's one of those episodes where really just like the – look, I don't want to – jump too far ahead here but the performances are so strong that really just recapping the plot yeah isn't too bad because mm-hmm. everything that is really worth getting into is just in the the emoting that's going on so everybody if you didn't watch this if you just waited for the recap uh, maybe go back and watch it because you need the emotional journey in this too I mean, rarely, you know, do we have a, a balance of character and plot development type of a script to break down. Mm-hmm. In this case, we had a lot of character. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings me to our first point. Ooh, okay. And observations here. Yeah. So who exactly was the brunette woman at the beginning? And why didn't Tom introduce her to anyone? Because she actually had lines. We, we came back to her. At, yes, because she had lines and we came back to her, I kept thinking like, well, and Tom kissed her. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, uh, okay, well, I assume that she's just a holodeck character, but I, I kind of miss the idea that we had established holodeck characters like Sandrine, and maybe they couldn't mm-hmm. get Judy Geese in again, or they just decided they weren't going to go that route anymore. But then I was like, well, he's so familiar that maybe she's a real person, <laughs> but that wasn't That's right either. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was a strange, strange choice. Look, I know that we're going to get into so many things into this episode, but it did pretty much from the beginning have me wondering what is the likelihood that a sociopathic murderer would have made it through Starfleet? You know, because he he does have a history. Now, granted, he goes off to the Maquis, and mm-hmm. sure, we just blame a lot there. And we go, oh well, they're just violent and they're just killing Cardassians. But but wait, wait, before that, he's Betazoid which he's surrounded by people who can, you know, read emotions and he makes it over to Starfleet. Like were there no red flags along the way for any of this? Uh it's hard, I found hard to know that, what that process was. I mean I found that super interesting. So you have you have Suter who's you know, he's Betazoid and, and Beta Z is part of Starfleet mm-hmm. and he was in the Maquis. Does the algebra basically then say are all Betazoid Maquis, are all Betazoid Starfleet? And, like, how does the Maquis fit into this? Like, aren't they just kind of Federation citizens? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was my impression. And I, and I went back through the, the script where they're trying to give a background on it. And my impression mm-hmm. was, yeah, okay, as a Betazoid, he is a Federation citizen. At yeah. some point, he chooses to go to Starfleet, chooses to join Starfleet. And at some point along there, he's like, nope, this isn't for me. I'm going to go off and join the Maquis, which mm-hmm. is made up of a lot of Federation citizens, many of them Starfleet, many of them not, because here's his opportunity to kill. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. But mm-hmm. how along those uh, all, all of those points in his life up until that did he manage to just slip through the system? Maybe some um, cracks. Maybe maybe one of his Starfleet officers looked at him wrong. Oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah, never to be heard from again. Now, I'm really interested in the idea, that, though, that, that there is this one guy the whole trip who's just in his room. 
Like, like who checks in on him? Uh, what's the plan when they get back? Does does anyone let him know when Voyager gets into serious danger in the years ahead? Or does he just look out his window and he's like, oh, damn, another scary enemy ship trying to kill us? You know, that or. Yeah, or. Yeah, or, or it's like, I have a special skill set, not to steal from Liam Neeson, right? <laughs> you know, I have a very special skill that if they want to come talk to me about it and I can help them get through this problem, if not, I'll just spend someone else's replicator energy rations because that's my punishment. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, that could be it. Put a pin in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> now let's talk about what um, let's talk about what Neelix was uh, needling Tuvok with. There were two different versions. Uh, you know, there was the Day of Atonement, but then we got to Ramari. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I love this idea. First of all, I mean, this is hilarious to hear the description of it. Anyway, but just this bacchanal a thousand years ago <laughs> that has been replaced now with you know they, they got rid of that or they really play that down but instead we're just going to do the day of atonement to me that is just hilarious because the the vulcans once again have just logicked themselves out of a good time <laughs> so i have this meme and i know that there are so many talented memers out there mm-hmm. alan especially you know, in our in yeah. our family of mission loggers is so you have Tuvok saying, the Rumari is an ancient pagan festival. And then Neelix says, full of barely clothed Vulcan men and women covered in slippery <laughs> really in Greece chasing one another. Yeah. But then the added extra spice to all of this, yeah. you bring in back in Gath. <gasps> oh, he's seeking pleasure. And he just looks at him and say, hold my pecan pie. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> or pecan pie. Or, I'm not, you know, I'm, one or the well, other. I'm sorry, John. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We know triggered. I'm triggered yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, great bit of dialogue between Neelix and Tuvok. I will not rest until I see you smile. Then you will not rest. <laughs> Perfectly awesome. played. Perfectly played. That that just, yeah. that is a line that wrote itself, I'm sure, for Michael Piller. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Chakotay didn't put anything about Suter's psychology in his profile. I understand not being judgmental, but is there maybe a balance to be found here between privacy and necessary information? I don't know exactly where that line is, but uh, maybe something, maybe something to be said for a little deeper dive. I think in Memory Alpha, when I was looking at that, I think that Starfleet is not allowed to look at like FB profiles. So, you mm. know, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram there we profiling. Go. Yep. You know, that might be it. When Chakotay, this was a nice bit of acting, you know, by Robert Beltran, but mm. he was talking about the cold, dead eyes of Suter. And it really reminded me a lot of when Quint was talking about in Jaws, when he was talking about the sharks when he was in the Indianapolis. Oh, yeah. You know, when they just yeah, rolled over yeah. with those cold, cold. dead eyes. <laughs> right. You know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Very true. Also, going to throw this out there. There, that on a crew of you know 140 plus people just shy of 150 shouldn't be too hard to narrow down the murderer i mm-hmm. it, but you might make the job easier if you had uh let's see uh security cameras oh oh tuvok that that is a note for you yeah also again holy crap they let a murderer on board there's a weird thing, you know, about, I don't know, kind of like vetting your crew and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or is this like a weird kind of Starfleet shorthand for kind of like Starfleet naivete? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is this whole thing that, that Jane was trying to get across in alliances where you you have to trust before you get stung. But mm-hmm. actually getting stung is the lesson that you learn. 
but that sting can hurt really, really badly. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I, I know that we're, doc, ta- you know, we're talking about kind of like the better version of humanity in the 24th century, 23rd century, 22nd century, how far you want to roll that back. Mm. But there is the whole, maybe we should do our homework first. Yeah, right. Maybe just a little bit. Yeah, could be. I do have a question, very important. Uh, how much is a replicator ration actually worth? Mm-hmm. Do we measure its output in weight, or is a filet mignon still more expensive than Rice Krispies? Because let me tell you, I could do some damage. <laughs> I could do some damage with one ration if that machine just replicates whatever you ask of it. Tom Paris was onto it. He was like, I'm going to get the prime rib and the mashed potatoes and the spinach and the Yorkshire pudding. And he knew. So if that's one order, if that's one ration, just throw in dessert, too, while you're at it. I mean, that's, that's a lot. It's like, mm-hmm. is there like a replicator vending machine on Voyager? Ooh, you know, yeah, it could be. Where, you know, you, you, you dig your, you know, you put your, well, there's no pockets in uniform, so you can't like dig for change, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, usually like as a, as a normal human pocket-wearing person, you yes. know, you have like change and you look at the vending machine like, oh, man, I have 55 cents, but I've had 60, I could have gotten the Twix, but now I got to deal yeah, with the heat bar. I'm like, right, ah, right, right. Oh, tragic. Yeah. There are a lot of gamblers aboard Voyager. <laughs> yeah, they're all into I mean, it. <laughs> when you're in Sundreens, right? And yeah. you take kind of like that as a cross section of like, you know, people in Starfleet. I mean, gambling, I mean that that's still going on. I mean, smoking actually got banned like easier than gambling, right? Yeah. Yeah, very true. Very true. Back to the kind of serious aspect of this, uh, when uh, Suter calls out uh, to Tuvok that, you know, mind melds are a form of violence, I was thinking, yes, just ask Valeris. There are times Mm -hmm. that we've seen the mind meld used in a very aggressive way. And... uh, yeah, uh, with the witnesses and everything. But I do love the doctor coming by with anyone with an ounce of sense wouldn't share his brain with someone else. Uh, <laughs> he was trolling so hard in this episode. He was straight up on Tuvok. Looks so bad. He was, yeah. Vulcans are a very interesting race, you know, very interesting species. Mm-hmm. When they lose logic, when they lose control, it is terrifying. Emotionally compromised Tuvok is terrifying. When he said, yeah. you are not invulnerable, hologram, yeah. I was scared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, as a viewer, it's terrifying. Like, and I have more to say about Tim Russ. Sure. Like, later on. Yeah. Sure. So, in back-to-back episodes, here's an interesting... I'm keeping score here. Mm-hmm. You know, in back-to-back episodes both in Threshold and now Meld, Tom and Tuvok, respectively in their own states of illness, call Janeway a liar mm-hmm. while behind a force field in sickbay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure if, like, if it's a weird coincidence because you have different writers and different directors, but is there something being said about how her crew actually feel about her? Ooh, yeah, that, that must sting for her two mm-hmm. weeks in a row. And um, just to kind of uh, double down on what you were saying about mind melds as a form of violence. So in Star Trek VI was the first time on Valeris at the mm-hmm. end of the at the end where where Spock does a double mm-hmm. Vulcan grip mind meld. Yeah, I think on almost every example that we've seen so far in Voyager, Tuvok has done the same thing. He did it to Suter at the end of this episode. He did it with Kess in Cold Fire. Mm-hmm. Is that? his standard Vulcan mind meld grip? I mean, isn't that really kind of invasive? 
Yeah, maybe maybe that's how he learned. Maybe he learned from uh, the mind melders on Vulcan who do that in a much more hardcore way than Spock does. Yeah, yeah. could be. Speaking of Tuvok going hardcore, says to uh, Janeway, sparing Suter's life is a sign of weakness. You disgust me. <sighs> you, yeah, stings, stings. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to ask, like, is that I mean, look, I'm sure we'll get into it. Is that the real Tuvok under the surface? Or how much of that do you apply to Suter's influence coming out? So Tuvok isn't technically in his right mind. Like like when somebody gets really drunk and then tells you exactly what's on their mind, <laughs> you know, how do you deal with that? Is that? Do you just go like, ooh, that is the actual truth coming out? Or no, they're not in their right mind. Therefore, I can't take what they're saying seriously. I guess it depends on when they're back. What do they say? So pin that, and I have a note that's actually called In Tuvok Veritas. Okay, very good. And then yeah. one other uh, thing that I have, one other note here just for, for the crew, maybe for Tuvok to get in on this as well. Is there not a turn on the EMH function if Tuvok or someone else wakes up in sickbay, starts banging around and disabling the force field? That just seems like an oversight. Yeah, it's like Tuvok has basically said at every turn, I know how to countermeasure every single security feature on this ship. I probably designed some of them. You might want to take some precautions. I'm just saying. Right? Yeah. He even took precautions of his own. Yeah. So kind of like did. take a page from Tuvok's book, right? He did. The truth is out there now, John. So Tuvok's apology to Janeway. I mean, he spoke his truth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even under the influence of what happened to him. So do you just do the Vulcan thing and bury those feelings or how do you move on from here? What does that look like when he shows up at work the next morning? Does he bring her a cup of coffee and like uh, an apology card? <laughs> you know, just I'm, I'm sorry that I berated you and undermined your authority in front of the medical staff. Love to Just think. If the holographic doctor had to solve the murder mystery, he would by definition be an Inspector Gadget. We will get right back to Meld after a word from this week's sponsor. And again, this week's sponsor is you. All of you who have joined us at Patreon, patreon.com slash mission log, and have done cool, fun things like join us over in Discord, the exclusive mission log Discord that you can only get to if you're a Patreon member. And maybe you joined us for one of our, well, we have a full slate, really, of live chats Mm -hmm. going on, video, audio, and a little, uh, you know, text chat on the side. Norman, I mean, what have people been, uh, been joining us for over there? Well, with the new live chat, you know, we have all the different topics that a lot of our Discord listeners have actually suggested that they would enjoy more live conversation on. So we have Stargate and covering Stargate Atlantis. We have Babylon 5 covering Babylon 5 from the very beginning. Uh, we have a wonderful kind of communal group called Con Tiki Wednesdays, where you talk about basically conventions or planning for conventions. Uh, One of our uh, members and uh, friends of Mission Log, Matthew, has started time and again his podcast talking about the Twilight Zone. Uh, And, uh, of course, we have Captain Mike talking about all the way back to season one (laughs) of the Orville because, uh, you know, Captain Mike and Jessica Lynn Verde did the Orville for our YouTube channel for Roddenberry Entertainment. And a lot of people wanted to go back and talk about it from the very beginning. So 
We started this off, John, just mm-hmm. to actually have our listeners and our subscribers and friends join a live chat because we wanted to kind of get everyone out of the doldrums of COVID. And now look what mm-hmm. it's turned into. Yeah, it's pretty great. I mean, pretty much any day of the week, you will find people there chatting. Maybe you just want to drop in on the text, or maybe you want to actually have a real-time audio-video conversation with us. We love doing that. Uh, that's just one of the many perks of joining us at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Mission Log, but it truly is the heart and soul of it all. You will also get early access to shows. You will also get exclusive swag that is only for our Patreon supporters. And let me give a very special thanks to some of the folks who have joined us most recently, Micah, Charles, Michael, Jolana, Matt, and Brandon. We sure do appreciate your support. So you can join them and us at patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you in the discord. All right, Norman, you know, sometimes we would play the title game where we do a a deep dive into the title. Meld, pretty (laughs) self-apparent. They say it pretty often here. Mm -hmm. But I want to do the character name game here. Oh, okay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because we, oh, Darwin, we hardly knew you. And I'm not talking about the uh, dolphin on Sequest. No. Yeah, deep cut. I feel like I need to drink or something like that for that reference. (laughs) Wow. You're welcome. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's very interesting. We have the choice of the name Darwin here for our ill-fated crewman that Suter takes out. I thought that was worth mentioning because of a few reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, survival of the fittest is a theme that picks up right from last week's show. Right. That was an exploration, warts and all, about the potential of evolution or de-evolution as we might see it into another form. But that is the thing that survived or presumably will survive if humanity just sort of keeps changing and evolving. Uh, look, we, we could debate the realism of that all day long, <laughs> but but here, here we have the person who did not survive. In fact, he is taken out by the predator. Darwin is the prey here. And maybe we hope that we evolve into beings who can use logic and compassion, that those traits will win out in our further evolution over the violent tendencies that are very much on display in front and center in the story for this episode. It says, oh, no, those tendencies are still there. There are still things out there that can take you down. John, are you saying, without saying, that there was a Darwin entendre happening? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Mm. You get plus 10 internet points for that. And that is our album for today, Darwin Entendre, the Darwin Darwin Entendre. Entendre. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to, like, not kind of pay attention to that, even though it's not kind Mm -hmm. of like the point or, like, a big point of this episode. But killing a crew named Darwin, because Suter just naturally selected him. Mm. Mm. I know that there's a reference Mm. to be made here. I'm sure that maybe in the script, you know, somebody was like, oh, this is a clever way of offing a character and trying to actually start, you know, a, a psychological profile on Suter. But yeah, it was it's worth mentioning just because the name Darwin in science is uh, yeah. obviously important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, all right, let's talk about another thing that is definitely not front and center with this episode, but it deserves, uh, I think, some mention here. It's a little bit of discussion. Why does this show feel the need to invent something that undermines Tom Paris right after a story that built him up? It was a very strange choice because, look, on the one hand, you can say, 
okay, he he's still a little bit of a rebel. He still needs to get a little of this, you know, the bad boy out uh, of himself. And what he's doing, honestly, is pretty innocent in the greater scheme of things. Mm-hmm. But on the other end, I think the really <laughs> terrible part that undermines him here is his reaction to Chicote. Yeah. So, and I know that this is a very fine line here with honestly just a couple of minutes of script time in this episode. We still have to give him some rough edges. He can't just be perfect. But is this really the right way to do it? I, he's running this he, this betting ring in the holodeck, and honestly, would anybody care? I bet plenty of people on Voyager would have figured it out early enough. As you pointed out, there's a lot of people who wanted to participate anyway, yeah. you know, and the people who figured it out, well, they just would not have been a part of that audience for his little game here. And the crime itself isn't that serious. What's worse is Tom's back talk to Chicote, just way more out of line than anything else. It really is kind of like a disservice, I think, to where we left Tom in threshold because Tom was like, I understand now, you know, and, and Janeway, you know, that's what Chicote was basically trying to tell him. It's like, you know, the, the captain has put a lot of faith in you. You know, she believes in you. And this is kind of like what you revert to, what you regress to, you know, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I throw the pun in here. It's like, it's not Tom Paris anymore. It's Tom Petty, right? You know, like, <laughs> oh my God. I'm on fire today. I know. You are. Really. You are. Yeah. But it really is like the whole thing with Tom. You're right. I, I can see that as being innocent and he's improving the morale, you know, with his fellow officers, with people in mm-hmm. Sandrine's who are on their downtime. He's not forcing anyone, but he is kind of grifting people into like doing this because the only person who's really benefiting and he knows it is mm-hmm. him. You know, even here. Yeah, and I think sure. that Harry should have said like, hey, look. You know, the, the the bank is skimming, right? You know, you're yeah. always making a credit, but everyone else is losing. So, hey, look, why don't you, like, not do this anymore? This isn't really a good look for you. The optics are bad. But Chakotay yeah. is like, hey, you know what? I see what's going on here. And you know what? This is going to be just – we're just going to end this, you know? Yeah. And I'm going to embarrass you in front of all these officers. You've already been kind of pilfering already. Mm-hmm. But when Tom said – about the reports like someone's got to fill out the reports yeah someone does it's called somebody who actually takes his job seriously tom someone who actually cares about the crew and somebody who wants to try and get these people home right so why don't you get on board why don't you like remember what happened in your warp 10 failed experiment and learn and grow and i really wish that the i know that the writers probably don't like read everyone's scripts but you know what it was a huge aggression in his character from where we came from, I think. It really was. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah to, and again, I, I don't need Tom Paris to be perfect at all. I mean, I, I think the idea of him having this little side hustle, that's in character. And mm-hmm. you could play that out in a bunch of different ways. The way this resolved itself, terrible. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. terrible. But I also know, yeah. like, I don't know, like, we haven't, like, jumped ahead in the timeline. And I don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. like, if this is going to get referenced at all. But I always like bringing up this 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 one kind of like caveat that we have with our you know with our deep dives. If you remove all of this, like mm-hmm. the entirety of this content from this episode, it changes nothing. Yep. About this episode. Yep. yep. And right. I would have been fine with that, mm-hmm. to be quite honest. Now, uh, look, Tuvok is going to be a big part of our discussion here. But I, I also just want to mention that in addition to growing and exploring the depths of the Vulcan psychology, I'm really impressed and interested here that we have a Betazoid as our bad guy. Mm-hmm. I feel like we never got enough out of Diana and Luaxana alone 
we did have a little bit uh, exploring their darker sides, a little bit of just seeing that there is more depth, particularly to Loaxana, who comes on so strong. But then there are reveals about what she is hiding, what she's dealing with. But this, something like this, to introduce somebody who is uh, a sociopath, who doesn't have the same abilities, who is the polar opposite, does not feel even his own feelings. I think that was a fascinating way to just keep like reminding us and pushing us to have a little more insight into Betazoids as a whole, not just that little slice that we've gotten. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's looking at like humanity, you know, especially the, the federation evolved humanity of the future and say everyone believes, everyone thinks, everyone's indoctrinated, everyone's following kind of like the party line until you actually find examples that don't. And I find that so fascinating about this particular episode because you're right we have a very kind of like uh, a very cursory knowledge of kind of like the betazoid culture especially since we've i'm not sure like how many male beta z that we've actually met throughout the course of like the mm-hmm. this this you know uh this grander universe post tng i know we have i just can't remember yeah. offhand you know yeah. but in this case though someone who's just completely cut off from the one gift that we know that the Betazoids are most proficient in, and that's connecting with the emotions of everybody. So what happens yeah. when you don't have that? It's like, it's like almost kind of like some strange genetic mutation, like in Suter himself. Yeah. Uh, There's so much to discuss with Tuvok, and I, I honestly, you know, I feel like uh, this is one where we're just going to scratch the surface. We need days. We do. You know, we really part do. part two, part three, part four. Right? Yeah. yeah. But what one of the strengths of this script is that you take a guy like Tuvok, who is alien to us as humans, but he is the stand-in for us in this story, which I think is what's so interesting. In fact, just earlier today, I was listening to a podcast that was talking to people about why there is such fascination with true crime TV series, true crime podcasts. And it's not because people are taking lessons in how to be a killer. It's because there is this fascination with the thing that you cannot understand. With uh, human beings just like us will carry out these terrible atrocities and we don't we're always looking for the reason why because that why if you can answer the why it becomes partly protection for us it also becomes partly reassurance for us like ooh, well i won't find myself in that position i won't go down that path tuvok is you know tuvok is asking that question like i said you know how how could someone do that because we are fascinated by the idea that even our very own species can do these things that are reprehensible, and we are so curious, and then we try to do what Tuvok does, which is to apply logic and understanding and motivation to the thing that isn't necessarily logical or understandable or has a clear-cut motivation. The doctor phrases it very well. What if there isn't? What if there is just some primal urge that simply can't be tamed or understood? Which then raises a much more difficult question. You know, if you can say for sure that that is a thing that isn't understandable, isn't logical, and therefore can't be contained, 
Does that mean that those people are more or less like us? Does it mean that there are more people like that walking around than we know about? Does mm-hmm. it, 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 these are all the reasons that those stories just stick in the popular imagination. And no matter what, they will always be part of our culture, you know? There's an interesting line that was delivered in a performance by one of the a comedian, Louis C.K. And he said that in his bit, if there were no laws against murder, there would be way more murder. Because in a civilized society, that is what's basically stopping you from doing exactly what Lon Suter is doing. The, the fear hmm. of crime uh, or the fear of the punishment of the crime, right? If there were no checks to those extremisms, then a person like Lon Suter would be like, well, you know what? I'm just going to act on an urge. And I think that that's where like mm-hmm. Tuvok really is, I think, at a crossroads here because there's the part of him, the Vulcan violent past that he knows how to access and it's part of his history that says, I know these urges, but there are laws in place to prevent me meet Tuvok from acting on these urges because I could, and I know every single possible way of getting around the system to be able to hide myself from after acting on those urges. Lon Suter doesn't really have that, you know, that luxury. He tried and he got caught, but it didn't really matter because that's where we're at. That's the crux of this entire episode. It doesn't really matter because there are no real laws on Voyager that's preventing you from doing this. At least not yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, well, they don't have their own sort of set of laws and government. I mean, Janeway clearly from the very beginning has said, you know, we're we're living under Starfleet rules. We will maintain those Starfleet rules. I I, I don't know. I, I would take exception to the idea that the only thing preventing somebody from murdering or carrying out a crime is the fear of punishment. Yes, I think there are people who are deterred from doing things because of the fear of punishment. But I can tell you if uh, murder were not illegal, I still have no desire to murder another human being. No, but uh, if one uh, had the urge and there wasn't something in place to be able to stop them from acting on that urge. But there are those who do it anyway. True. There are plenty, you know, every single day. Plenty of right. people who do that anyway. So that kind of like goes to the big question, like on Voyager, the actual ship, how can the punishment fit the crime, right? Because we're talking mm-hmm. like, I know that Janeway and Tuvok were wrestling with Suter's fate. And Janeway said, we're just going to lock him up in his room. And it's kind of like house arrest. Like, you're going to lock me up in a place where I can get the best food. I can watch the best TV. I can hang out in my, mm-hmm. you know, in my pajamas. I don't have to do any work. Everyone's going to do the work and pick up my own slack. Sure. House arrest me. Do it. Yeah. There is literally no downside to the punishment that Suter's facing. None. Yeah, that is the really tough position that they're in because, okay, there's whatever the worst job on Voyager is. (laughs) it's still probably not as bad as some of the best jobs that human beings in the early 21st century have out there now. He's still on this nice ship with plenty of luxuries coming his way, uh, uh, plenty of of creature comforts available Mm -hmm. to him. Now, that's not to say that it's a total cakewalk. He, He is in solitary 
for, I would assume, for all intents. He's still in his room all the time, unable to be a participant in anything that's going on. There isn't any guarantee when you get home or don't get home. They could get back to the uh, Alpha Quadrant tomorrow, or it could take 70 years or somewhere in between. So if they get back tomorrow... As soon as everybody welcomes Voyager home, the next thing Janeway does is tell security, get that guy out of here. And now he needs to be, you know, run through whatever system of justice we're going to apply to him, Mm -hmm. which, you know, in the 24th century, some of it looks fine. Some of it doesn't. But I would also imagine the rehabilitation would be at the top of the list instead of just incarceration for the sake of incarceration. I can't think it'll be great. But to your point, it's also still pretty great compared to the other alternatives. Well, like, he, could, is it is it better or worse for him to just be in the brig the entire time? But then you've got to have a security guard there in the brig with him for the mm-hmm. next day to seventy years. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and that's again under the impression that they're not going to make it home. You know, in that time. And it would be interesting to see, like, a, a future story of, okay, Lon Suter is kind of like the creepy old guy that was, you know, sequestered off in his room, and no one goes on deck so-and-so to talk to him, right? You know, he's in that Hannibal Lecter kind of, like, sequestered privacy. But when you really think about, like, what he is, who he is, and the punishment that he's going to face, he's a sociopath. He can do without being with people, right? So he yeah. doesn't have to interact with anyone because that's... That's one of kind of like the characteristics of a sociopath. They can or can't or choose not to or choose to. It it really depends on like what they want. And if he's stuck there, as long as he's kept alive by three squares, you know, three squares, a hot and a cot, right? That's mm-hmm. that's not a bad deal, right? And he doesn't have to interface with people. He doesn't have to uh, report for duty. He doesn't have to talk to like anybody. He doesn't have, like he literally has like the best possible scenario for murdering someone. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So that's, I think, for somebody who follows this strict rule of law and logic, I can see why Tuvok is so bent in that kind of, Ahab trying to find his white whale, Javert trying to find his Valjean mm-hmm. kind of way, because mm-hmm. there's no way to close that circuit. There's no way to find the appropriate punishment for the appropriate crime, not at least on Voyager, you know, where they are in the Delta Quadrant. And again, why not stick him on an asteroid with X amount of rations? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's up to you. You're so smart. Why don't you get yourself off this asteroid? Right. I, you know, yeah. It, Janeway kind of dismissed that early on, which is... You don't leave him on a planet where there's other people, right? Mm-hmm. Just drop him off, right? But if you found a habitable, uninhabited place, do you just drop him off with some rations and say, good luck? Is that also cruel and unusual to just leave him out there? You know, John, to uh, quote a another famous original series episode, you know, one day we will revisit this and it would be interesting to see, you know, what sprung forth from the seed that we planted here today. Well, Khan had dozens of other people around him, but the, this guy, possibly not as many. But, you know, it, it does raise this question because 
okay, what is the appropriate punishment on board, particularly if you need hands, if you need the manpower, the, mm-hmm. the people power on board to carry out the functions of the ship. When you're getting attacked by someone else, is it okay for somebody to just be sitting this one out, hanging out in their room, just doing whatever, you know? Also, at the same time, I have to ask, in the way that you have an EMH, in the way that you have the combined medical knowledge of multiple species embodied in this computer, how far along has crime and punishment gone in the 24th century? Are there methods, are there technologies that somebody like this could be rehabilitated? Do you say, you know what, he doesn't need to be in his room for however many years, he needs to be in the holodeck for however many years, talking to our best hollow recreations of 24th century psychologists, medical doctors possibly who can correct this imbalance in his brain the doctor was quite good at finding these changes in brain chemistry so look i don't want to go too far in the route of like a uh, you know clockwork orange scenario here but is it reasonable to say well you know what the doctor could actually come up with some medical techniques that might take those urges away from him. Then you have a whole existential question about, is that person still that person anymore? But that's a really good question that you brought up, and it's a really good point, because they tried all of these different technological techniques on Tuvok. Why didn't they do that mm-hmm. to Suter yeah. at the same time? You know, because yeah. then you can run parallel data and see, like, who is affecting who? What is happening between the chemistries between these two people? Because it's just like, it seems that whatever Tuvok was doing was kind of, like, labeled in the wrong while Suter was kind of like benefiting from all of the technique that Tuvok has applied to him through the mind meld. Yeah, right, right. He, he still has those pieces of Tuvok kicking around in his mind that has given him some discipline. I, I don't know that they should necessarily give up on him. Now, I'm not saying that you can't turn your back on Suter, <laughs> you know, so I'm not saying that you can turn your back on Suter, but maybe there, uh, maybe there are other ways to go here. But I, I think what you're getting at with this question of, is there an appropriate punishment? That gets to this bigger question in the story overall. Is there ever an appropriate punishment that satisfies everyone who sees that taking place? You know, how extreme do we get with our punishment before also then taking away a piece of our own humanity? Uh, We bring up execution here. Janeway is horrified at the idea. This show wants us to ask ourselves, is execution ever warranted? Is capital punishment ever warranted, uh, given whatever the nature of the crime would be? On the opposite extreme of thing, is confinement to quarters too easy, or is that an acceptable punishment? You're saying no. I think I'm on board with you there. You know, but how can we ever actually be satisfied that we have come up with an appropriate punishment for something this extreme? You know, I remember back when uh, the Enterprise D crew came across uh, Kevin Uxbridge mm-hmm. uh, in The Survivor. Mm-hmm. Here he was, a being responsible for genocide, and Captain Picard just goes, we don't even have a way to punish you. What, what is that thing? What, what could a bunch of humans possibly do to this being with godlike powers who has just wiped out every perceived enemy that he has in this fit of rage? What, so what do we do? do? Do we kill him then? 
does that satisfy it? I think that's what's so provocative about the show is that you, you take this idea and we should very easily be able to understand that there has to be a crime or there has to be a punishment that fits the crime. But what is it? Ready for John and Norm to finish their analysis of this episode? Personally, I think they're killing it. Sorry, too soon. Sometimes I like find these really fun and cute and, uh, and entertaining anecdotes to bring at the end. of. The- I'm not going to do any of that because this episode is so good and it's so deep and it's so important. And I want to spend as much time here in our final segment to talk about does meld withstand the test of time? Does it hold up? And then have we been able to find any morals or meanings or messages mined from this episode? Let's jump right into it, John. Let's start with you. Let's get into what happened with Meld. How did you feel about it? And where do we go from here? Well, I want to ask you and our listeners something up front here, because look, I'll spoil it to say that I think this is a very strong episode. I think that it, it holds up extremely well. But Would this be an even more interesting episode if we had been shown rather than being told about Suter's background? You know, Chakotay describes a lot. But what if we had seen Suter over the course of half dozen episodes when we got to know him more? Maybe he's somebody that we met way back in the DS9 days with a Maquis crew. I feel like his personality and his problem could have been even richer rather than what I think is the one problem with this episode is you get a brand new character introduced who, well, you know, spoiler, we will see him again, <laughs> but but we get this one new character and then we get this format change almost. The, this episode is a police procedural and it's a bit of this getting into the mind of a killer a la Silence of the Lambs and many, many other stories like it. So there's not much new there in that respect, and yet it is riveting and fascinating to see how that plays out on Tuvok. This episode shows Star Trek's unique approach to something that otherwise audiences may feel like they've seen before. I, you know, Part of what makes this so good is Tim's performance. He gets to plumb those depths of Vulcan psychology, be faced with a great foe who is hard to grasp, and that's what makes it that that difficulty of of understanding is what is meant to grab the audience and and that's that's the part of it that we are supposed to identify with is his difficulty in understanding this mind of a killer i think the other strength here is just star trek doing something provocative in a way that only science fiction can do so here we get to literally enter the mind of a killer that's not just a a metaphor you know but our lead character actually does that for this story and then pose those questions back to the audience about the nature of violence about the very ideas of justice and punishment and walk away with something that is thoughtful that doesn't really feel obligated to offer up a whole lot of answers I think that is a real testament to the the cleverness of Michael Piller's script and how seriously he took this subject matter when he wrote it. Look, it's obvious that the MVPs here, Tim Russ, mm-hmm. Brad Dourif, I, I, I love any episode where you can just let a couple of actors go the way they did here. 
Star Trek has done this well in the past. And on display here, again, it is just magnetic. The only downside here, really, in the structure of this episode is that the B-plot is pointless. And like you said before, you could just lift it out entirely. And yet, and yet, it is so forgettable that the rest of this episode absolutely elevates itself to the point of holding up, I would say being essential to understanding Tuvok and getting more into the depths of what it means to be Vulcan. Um, I think it's fantastic, even mm-hmm. with those misplaced scenes of Tom and his uh, gambling. <laughs> so what about for you, Norm? I mean, it's an absolute yes for me. Does this episode hold up? Mm-hmm. Tim Russ, unbelievable, just absolutely yeah. unbelievable. I had no idea that he was, you know, that he could bring that kind of a game. You know, I was on the, you know, I know this is a little bit hyperbolic, but I was on the edge of my seat, <laughs> right? When he was in sick bay and he was emotionally compromised and he shoved his hand into the force field just because he wanted to get at Janeway so badly, you know, and just... Everything that led up to that moment was earned. It was well acted. It was, dare I say, this was kind of like in that realm of duet, you know, where you're bringing that kind of uh, performance to uh, that changes the expectation of the character. If Threshold was Robbie's Jatrell, which is kind of what I alluded to when I was talking about Threshold last week, then Meld is Tim's version of Jatrell, where you just Mm. basically are given so much great material to work with. You actually get to see an actor and what they can do when given the actual chance and material to perform that character in that way, you know, and yeah. push the depths of that character and give them that extra gear shift that you've always wanted to see. And sometimes, again, to my surprise, never really knew existed in that performer, in that actor. The direction of this episode is phenomenal. I love a lot of the extreme point of view that you were getting. I mean, especially when Tuvok was murdering Neelix and you had a lot of kind of like that forced perspective where you felt Mm -hmm. kind of like the paranoia as you're watching it. And I thought that it built to that wonderful kind of crescendo where Tuvok employed like literally the double-fisted meld technique on, on Suter and it just got so intimate in a very violent way, right? Yeah. So that was something that was, it was unsettling, but necessary, you know, to pay off that scene and what that particular act of violence did to both of those characters. The lighting of this episode can't be, you know, overstated, you know, oh because. Oh my God. Incredible. Yeah. Even at the very beginning, you know, when Tuvok was interviewing Suter and there was just kind of like this cast shadow on him, very kind of, uh, it was like a like foreshadowing, pardon the mm-hmm. pun, of where Tuvok's character was going. And then the darkness of Tuvok's transformation when he was in his room, in oh. his cell like Suter and just trashed his, yeah. uh, you know, his uh, environment, you know, to the point where he was like literally a trigger away from, of, of possibly killing Janeway. Yeah. So all of that was just incredibly effective and it worked very well in terms of like watching kind of like the devolution of his psychosis. But Brad Dorff's transformation in parallel to that was also astonishing to watch where he started off as kind of this twitchy Brad Dorff personality because he's very good (laughs) at that to kind of like this cold, calculating, steady, methodical Vulcan 
yeah. type of character where he understood the power of what he was being given, that, that transformation of the mind meld, to actually be a far more effective and far more calculating sociopath. That's yeah. terrifying to think about, right? He's been actually given the tools to be actually better at what he does. Yeah. Yeah, for real. You know? But and, and like you said, like the biggest setback of this is the B plot. And I know that I haven't put on the writer's hat in a while, and I will, because <laughs> I do like seeing I, I, I hate seeing uh, wasted time in episodes where like time can be better spent evolving characters and character arcs. And I think there was a moment where Kat started to shine in Sick Bay with Tuvok. And I think that if you took all the time that you spent wasting it on Tom and whatever that that was in the story, you could have built up Kess's character and how she felt betrayed by Tuvok and find sympathy with Tuvok because Tuvok did that for her when she lost control in cold fire and yeah. brought her back from the abuse of her power. And instead, we just take that time to roll back all this great character building we had with Tom and Threshold. It made absolutely zero sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, that that ah, oh, you're right. That would have been an excellent use of that time. Nice use of the writer's hat. Look, morals, meanings, message. I feel like we have just talked about so much here, so I'm going to keep mine pretty lean. There was a, a great line that Suter had talking to Tuvok when uh, Tuvok comes back to supposedly execute Suter, and Suter says, "Justice or vengeance." If you can't control the violence, the violence controls you. And I think that is the point to ponder in this episode. I can understand the impulse to carry out punishment. And fortunately, most of us live in societies where one person isn't allowed to carry out that punishment on a self-serving mission of vengeance. It's why we have things like a court system. That's why we have things like laws put into place so that it isn't just total chaos. And Tuvok, and I said it before, I'll say it again, Tuvok steps in for all of us, gets to the root of the crime, and is so involved, so compromised by it, that he can't step back and also act with some level of mercy. He, he is too wrapped up in it. So is this a bonk-bonk-on-the-head message about violence or about capital punishment? Maybe not, but it doesn't really have to be. It, it's a story that allows the audience to go on a journey with a character and then step back and ask what's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And and how many ways can we split those hairs to really come up with, uh, with a solution here? And as the doctor already said, maybe there isn't a motivation here. And maybe in the end there isn't a very clear-cut right or wrong and how to handle the situation. But we got to experience a lot of different takes on it that have validity. What about you, Norman? Yeah, you know, I'm going to echo a little bit here. I'm going to kind of springboard off of uh, mm -hmm. of morality here so or, or the morals and the meanings. Because sometimes, you know, when we do our deep dives, you know, we're looking for that, you know, very obvious or dominant moral or that very obvious dominant meaning. But I think this case... You know, it's like what you're saying. There's a clearly dominant message, you know, and it's worth exploring. But I think that in our due diligence, it may be uncomfortable to discuss this in the process of exploring this message. Because I think that what what has been presented, and if 
if I'm doing my due diligence, it's going to be controversial, what I'm going to say. Hmm. But I think it's worth examining because I'm going to use a little bit of humor in there because in <laughs> Tuvok Veritas, you know, we get to see <laughs> nice. a certain yeah. truth, yeah. right? And the big question is, and the big message is, is Tuvok right? Okay, so let's explore like what Tuvok was saying here. Now, even though Tuvok's Vulcan discipline was compromised, it gave him the opportunity to speak his truth, meaning that that truth was there. That truth does exist in him. Tuvok says, you know, Captain, I don't mind telling you something the other Tuvok, the other Tuvok, never would. You are wrong. Hmm. Sparing suitors' life is a sign of weakness. You disgust me. All of you humans do. Admit it. Part of you feels as I do. Part of you wants him to die for what he did. And Janeway says, no part of me feels that way. And Tuvok says, liar. He has killed and you know he deserves to die. Tuvok knows Janeway better than anyone. This has been clearly established since Caretaker. So in his absolute candor, is Tuvok exposing something about Janeway that she clearly doesn't want brought to light? Is Tuvok airing out something delicate about Janeway's beliefs? That's just a question I want to put out there to our audience. But let's examine what he's truly saying in the context of the episode. Humanity of the 24th century is represented at its ideological peak, as represented by the Federation and Starfleet. But we know that Starfleet's principles only represent a certain percentage of this said humanity. What about non-Starfleet humanity? What about the Maquis? You know, because through their methods and certainly through Suter, what we've seen of his capabilities, we know that this primitive killer instinct persists. So if this is the case, then how can Tuvok and Janeway realistically deal with criminals like Suter by convincing themselves that once again, the only way to move forward is the Starfleet way? Is there no opportunity for growth here? Or is Chakotay challenged Janeway and alliances an opportunity for more creative thinking to find a better solution somewhere in the middle. Because if no one on that ship fears the rule of law, then how do you deal with what happens next? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Dreadnought. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at Warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Next time Tuvok, let's just skip the mind meld and do your best Jessica Fletcher impersonation. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.